Well, I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 24. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 22 through 27. And the topic is really the gospel to Felix, the Roman governor. So this is a time when uh, Paul has just gone through somewhat of a public trial when the high priest and some of the elders and also Tertullus, a paid attorney, kind of a prosecuting attorney, have come down to Caesarea. They've had this trial before Felix and uh, they were unable to convince uh, Felix that Paul had done anything wrong. So we pick it up uh, in Acts chapter 24, and again I'll be reading in verses 22 down through verse 27. And since the Word of God is inspired by God, profitable for us, a treasure over all treasures that we have given to us by the Lord, what a, what a great blessing it is to read the Word. So please listen with humility reverence and faith to the reading of God's holy word. Acts 24, starting in verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Well, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has recorded for us the topics of Paul's conversation with Felix now on more of a private level. We heard Paul defend himself publicly in front of those who had come down from Jerusalem attacking him. But this is going to be more of a private setting. So what did Paul emphasize? When we have the opportunity to talk with a Roman governor, what would we say? The most powerful man in the region listening to you? You're in custody. You're under his authority. You're under his power, at least humanly speaking. So what would you say? Well, Luke tells us. And something becomes quite obvious as we have read through this passage And that is that the nature of the topics that Paul talks about indicates 
that he is certainly more concerned with the release of Felix from his sin than he is for his own release from custody. And I think that marks him off as a not only a brave man, but a man with a heart for the Gospel. A heart to see sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, let me uh, introduce you again to uh, Felix and to his wife Drusilla, starting in verse 22. Felix, the Roman governor, we're told, having a more exact knowledge about the way. The way is the way they described basically the church, the followers of Christ who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. So Felix had a more exact knowledge about the way. Now we don't know how he came about that knowledge. Uh, His wife is a Jewess. That may have played some part in it. But it does tell us that the gospel had spread in this area and throughout the domain of Felix so that he became familiar with some of the, the truths about Christianity. We know that Philip lived in Caesarea. His four daughters were prophetesses. So there was a ministry there, not out of church there. We know that Philip Peter, excuse me, had also come to Caesarea and preached the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and he got saved. So there were many opportunities that Felix could have heard about the gospel and learned more about the way or about Christianity. We don't know fully how he came by that knowledge, but he had a more exact knowledge about the way. So he's not ignorant of these things. He has some superficial knowledge. Now in verse 22, he also puts puts off the Apostle Paul in making a decision of this trial that had recently taken place when he says at the end of verse 22, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Now on the one hand, he was was not in a hurry to render a decision. Uh, He says he's going to wait for Lysias to come down, but of course Lysias the commander who basically arrested Paul, hadn't found any guilt in Paul, nor had the Sanhedrin back in Acts chapter 23. They didn't really come down with a conviction. That's when he divided the assembly saying that I'm a believe in the resurrection, which the Pharisees would have adhered to, but the Sadducees would have not. But there's no conviction there. Tertullus, the paid, eloquent prosecuting attorney hadn't been able to sway Felix that Paul was guilty. So he was in no hurry to make a decision. On the other hand, he wanted to curry favor with the Jews. He's also hoping for a bribe. We'll see later on. So he decided to uh, keep Paul in custody, thinking that by keeping him there, that would help the things in Jerusalem to settle down, to calm down. Again, Roman government, What's big important to them is law and order. So you're going to bottle up Paul, keep him out of the public eye, and hopefully enable things to calm down all the more. So he decides to punt and postpone his verdict on the pretext of waiting for the commander's advice. Now he's also kind to the Apostle Paul. He's not been convicted of anything. But he's still going to keep him in custody, but he gives him some freedom in verse 23, allows his friends to come and minister to him. So it's not a very real difficult imprisonment. It's not like he's cast down in the bottom of a well or some some dark, dingy prison hole. 
He's there in the palace compound someplace. So, he's still under custody, but he has certain freedoms. And then we come to his wife, Drusilla. So, Felix at this time leaves Caesarea. And in verse 24, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife who was a Jewess. Now, Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who died in Acts 12, being eaten by worms because of his arrogance, his pride. So that's the Agrippa that died. So this is his youngest daughter. She's also the granddaughter of Herod the Great. So there's a, there's a lot of corruption and bad blood here in this family. But Drusilla had the reputation of being a young beauty queen at a very young age. She got married to another man. And Felix used uh, craftiness to lure her away from her husband to marry him. So she was actually Felix's third wife. And she was an unfaithful wife. And together they were guilty of adultery. But she was a Jewess, we're told in verse 24, which means she would have had some knowledge of the Old Testament, some understanding of the Jewish traditions, awareness of the Messianic expectations that was high in Judaism at that time, and would have been interested to some degree as a Jew. Now, obviously, she wasn't a good Jew. It's kind of like a rhino, you know, Republican in name only. She was kind of a a gino or a Jew in name only because of her lifestyle, as many of them were guilty at that time. But she would have had a certain measure of knowledge. So here you have a Gentile Roman governor married to a quasi-maybe-religious Jewish wife. And both of them are immersed in this rule over Judea and all the politics, all the power, lusting for that position. That's why Drusilla was lured away to Felix because he could promise that he would he would lead her in the high life because he was the governor of Judea at this time. But like moths attracted to the light, this couple are attracted out of some sense of interest in the gospel uh, that this man, the Apostle Paul, was preaching. And one, of course, one of the main features of the gospel that Paul was preaching is that anybody could be saved, Jew or Gentile, by simply repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So here you got a Gentile and a Jew in a marriage, and they're both being attracted, interested at least, to hear more about the gospel. So in verse 24, they send for the Apostle Paul. We don't know if Drusilla was there. I'm guessing she probably was. Uh, but they send for Paul and heard him speak about four things. Four topics. These are the four spiritual laws, I guess, of the Apostle Paul in this context. Faith in Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. 
Now, I don't know, you know, they may have been thinking, hey, let's invite this uh, Jewish rabbi to come in. And he's got all these wild stories about Jesus rising from the dead and all these miracles. And maybe they thought he would come and just entertain them with all these stories of miracles and wonders and all that going on. And were they ever uh, surprised? Uh, Because the Apostle Paul goes straight to the Gospel and he begins to hold their feet to the fire of their accountability before a holy God. So look at what he begins with in verse 24. They heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul obviously began to share with them salvation is by faith in Christ Jesus. Notice it's Christ Jesus and Him alone is the idea. It's not faith in Zeus, which the Roman governor would have certainly been brought up to worship the Pantheon and all, or the, all these different gods of the Greek and Roman culture. It's not going to be worship, salvation by worshiping them and not by worshiping Moses as the Jews were kind of inclined to do. No, it was through Christ Jesus and Him alone. So Paul probably rehearsed for them the facts about the life, sinless life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, reasoning to them from the Scriptures, at least Drusilla with her background in the Old Testament would have appreciated that Jesus fulfilled the Messianic promises. He was the only Savior and Lord and they need to put their trust in Him. That salvation is by faith in Christ Jesus. But also it's by faith in Christ Jesus, not works. You will not be justified by the works of the law. So that would have been important for the Jew, Drusilla, to hear. And also for Felix. Because in all the different religions of the Roman Empire that were engaging in worshiping Zeus or Apollos or any of those other gods, it was all merit-based. It was all based on works. It was all, again, tied up together with your performance before God. And yet, what Paul is emphasizing is that it is by faith in Christ Jesus. Jews need to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. Gentiles need to turn from their idols to a living God and trust in Christ Jesus for salvation. So he emphasized to them faith in Christ Jesus as the only means of salvation. Secondly, In verse 25, he also discussed with them the concept of righteousness. Now Luke is just giving us the topic headings here. He's not giving us any detail. And no doubt Paul waxed and taught uh, a lot on all four of these subjects. And we're just trying to, to grasp the essence of his ministry to them in private. But he was discussing righteousness. Now, they both would have had a distorted view of right, of right and wrong. Uh, certainly, uh, Felix did a lot of wrong in his governmental responsibilities as a governor. Maybe these things came up. Righteousness is a pretty broad term. 
And probably Paul discussed it from many different angles and perspectives. So he may very well have talked about Felix, about what involved being a righteous ruler. I mean, Proverbs speaks of that. The whole Old Testament, when you look at all the different kings of Israel and Judah and all the wickedness and all the, the judgments of God they brought upon their land could have been very well part of that topic. But also remember that Paul had just written Romans, his letter to the Romans, a few months before this point in time. And I would imagine that he probably rehearsed a lot of the truths about righteousness from the book of Romans. Because that, that was on his mind. He had just written this letter a few months earlier. So he probably emphasized to both Felix and Drusilla that there is none righteous, Romans 3. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. And then he probably emphasized from Romans chapter 5 that by nature we're all ungodly. We're all sinners. We're helpless and we're enemies of God. And he would have pressed that truth home to them. That we're all by nature lawbreakers and we've broken the law of God. So he may very well in discussing righteousness laid the foundation of the depravity and the sinfulness of man. You're not righteous, Felix. Drusilla, you're not righteous either. You have broken the law of God. From there, he may very well have gone on to talk about how God is righteous and His judgments are righteous. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Paul warns sinners that because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2.5 So in dealing with this topic of righteousness, he probably explained to them how unrighteous we all are, including them. And everybody has a sense that they think they're righteous before God, and he clarified that. And that they will stand before a righteous God whose judgments are completely righteous. And he probably pointed out to Felix that God doesn't take bribes. And notice what Felix is keeping Paul around for so he can get some bribes. But see, the God before whom they will stand, you cannot bribe you cannot in any way coerce or tempt him to violate a just, righteous judgment. So he would have emphasized that probably to them as well. And then he would have gone on possibly to elaborate on that Christ alone is righteous. Christ alone came, was born of a virgin, and lived a holy, righteous life without ever committing any sin at all. So that in Romans 5.18, it says that through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. When Christ died on the life as a sinless Lamb of God, bearing our sins, He could do that because He had no sin. He was the only righteous one that ever lived. He may very well have explained that to him. That only Christ can satisfy the demands of God because He is holy. He is without sin Himself. So He could die as our substitute, bearing our sins. 
In Romans 10 verse 4, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he would have emphasized Christ in His righteousness as a person and His righteousness in terms of His sacrifice for our sins. He had no sin. He bore our sins. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. The sinless for sinners. And he would have explained that to be justified and saved before God, therefore, is a gift of God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. All this would have been strange to them. To the pagan who worshipped all the gods, the Roman gods, and even of the Jewess who is caught up in all this distorted view of what is required for one to go to heaven. It's a gift of His grace through the righteous God who sent His righteous Son who provided the only sacrifice for our sins. And then he may very well have concluded this topic with the idea that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, then we are given the gift of Christ's righteousness. That becomes ours. Not by outdoing righteous things, but by believing in the righteous Savior and His righteousness is imputed and given to us as a gift when we put our faith in Him. We are justified of all of our sins. We're totally forgiven. We're imputed and given Christ's righteousness as a gift merely by faith in Him. As Romans 4, 5 says, to the one who believes in Christ, his faith is credited as righteousness. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as Paul explains also in a very powerful verse in Philippians 3, 9, that His goal was to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That ain't going to save anybody. That'll only damn us. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's a God-given righteousness. And He may very well have reminded and taught them that that is a gift of God through faith in Christ. So he taught the subject of righteousness to them. That they were in need of righteousness. There's nothing they could do to accumulate it or earn it before a holy God. They can only receive it as a gift through repenting and believing in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to suffer for our sins and paid the penalty for all of our sins. And then he shifted to the third subject of self-control. Now, this is where he got personal. The idea of self-control would have been a very bold topic for Paul because obviously, from a human perspective, Felix controlled whether Paul would be released or stayed in jail. Now, God controls all things. But uh, you don't want to necessarily offend the one who is overseeing you. You can make life pretty difficult for you. But he deals with a very sensitive topic of self-control. Now, self-control refers to the restraint 
of one's emotions or impulses or desires, especially in the matters of sex. You can see that Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 7 several times. So self-control in the area of managing those passions and desires can also be used in a broader sense of self-control when it comes to anger or the use of our tongue or our appetites. It has a broader meaning, but certainly in that that uh, sexual moral area. And this is where both Felix and Drusilla failed because they had no self-control. They, she had left her husband. He had divorced two other wives She had left her husband. They had no self-control, so they were just pursuing the passions of their lusts. And so he deals with them on the level of self-control. They had no self-control in the public. Felix was known for outbursts and doing things of of slaughtering people just out because he had no control. He was a a man of very uh, mean passions. And on a private level, they failed as well. Their very marriage certainly indicated that. Paul would have explained to them the nature of sin and the flesh and why self-control was a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which they needed. That lost people don't have it. It's a grace given to us to enable us to bridle and suppress the influences of our flesh and to say no to sin. So he dealt with this. And how he applied it, we don't know. I'm sure he was careful. I'm sure he was respectful. But I think he spoke the truth. And to what degree and how all this comes out, I don't know. But you're dealing with a with an adulterer who has authority over you. And you go and you deal with him with an area of sin that would have struck directly at Felix. No self-control as a man. Drusilla didn't have it either. So I think it just speaks of the boldness. And again, he may have shown tremendous love and compassion. Obviously, uh, what he was saying to Felix was something that uh, could have turned Felix against him viciously. It apparently did not. Spirit of God may have tempered his response. We just don't know. But he's dealing with that sensitive topic of trying to help Felix understand his sin, his need for a Savior. And then we move to the last topic. And this was the big one. The judgment to come. See, the Gospel doesn't let someone off the hook. It presses upon him the idea that he's on a clock and that every day gets closer to the day of judgment. Now from Felix's perspective, being a Roman, probably involved in all the idolatry of the Roman Empire to to one degree or another, their worship of the gods was mainly to stay in the good graces of the gods. So you practice the prayers, the libations, the rituals, the sacrifices to Zeus or Apollos or... Hermes or Poseidon or whoever it is you're worshiping, and you're engaging in all these outward activities, sometimes with the secret knowledge of the mystery religions, but at the core it was just a religion of works, primarily for blessings in this life. 
They were doing it so the gods would bless their health and bless their safety and bless their crops and bless, give them success in business and prosperity in the world. Most of the worship of these pagan Roman gods was primarily to accumulate blessings in their favor in this life. Now, many of them also had a concept of the afterlife. Uh, a popular one was that when you died, you're escorted to the river Styx by spirits, and you would pay a coin to Charon, the ferryman, who would boat you across the river Styx into Hades. At that point, you pass a three-headed watchdog. Where do they come up with this stuff? I mean, they're smoking something. I don't know. They're taking something. But you pass a three-headed watchdog, which belongs to the god of the underworld, and then you're examined by three judges. And after you're examined by three judges, then you're given to drink the water of forgetfulness, so you forget your past life. And then if you're a warrior, a soldier, or a hero, then you go to the Elysian Fields, which is paradise. If you're just an average good person, you go to the plain of uh, Ashfidel, which was neither pleasant nor unpleasant, just kind of a middle-of-the-road type of heaven. And if you really offended the gods, you go to Tardis, where you would be punished till your debt to society would be paid. Kind of like a, an early form of purgatory that the Roman Catholics borrowed from the pagans and eventually incorporated into their, into their religion. For most people, there was no eternal damnation in the Roman underworld except for the very worst of society. So here comes the Apostle Paul and he's telling them about the truth of what the Bible teaches of a judgment to come. So that their false hope, whatever they had of going to any kind of a heaven, whether it was Felix and his Roman religious ideas or or his wife Drusilla and her view of thinking maybe she's going to get to heaven, maybe. That all of that was a false hope. It was a shipwreck religion. Both of them had a shipwreck religion. It could not wash away their sins before a righteous God. And they must turn from their idolatry to the true and living God because a day of judgment is coming. And Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose on the third day will one day come back and be their judge. He will judge them. And that God has appointed a day when Christ will be the judge of the living and of the dead. This was the truth. Their religious understandings were a false hope. It was a dead end. It was a lie. And when that day of judgment comes, this judgment will examine each sinner in microscopic detail, which only an infinite mind could do. Our works, our words, our thoughts, the motives of our hearts, all of our sins on that day will be exposed in the light of God's truth and it will be promptly sentenced to judgment. No spending years on death row waiting for the day of execution. His judgment will be immediate. And on that day, if there is, if they have not found previously faith in Christ and forgiveness, they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. There's a day of judgment coming. For Felix, 
in particular, the sober reality is that though he stands as a judge over the Apostle Paul, one day God will stand as a judge over him. And that truth, to some level, began to sink in. The exhortation was, therefore, you must repent now or you will be judged later. So how does Felix respond? In verse 25, Felix became frightened. Of course he did. He should have. The doctrine of the coming judgment should terrify sinners. Felix found himself being weighed on the scales of God's justice and found wanting. So in verse 25, Felix became frightened. And he said, go away for the, for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. In other words, he was disturbed within by what Paul had been preaching to him. Speaking the truth of the Gospel of Christ. We also read on in verse 26 that at the same time too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. So, he's a complex guy. On the one hand, he has a measure of, of fear because of this message of the coming judgment. On the other hand, Man, I sure would like to buy that new Rolls Royce, you know, that I saw in the parking lot, and I need a little more money, so he's looking for bribes. So there's just, there's still corruption inside of his heart. So in verse 27, it says, For after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. So he wanted to do the Jews a favor. So he wanted to keep the Jews sort of on his good side to the extent that he could. So he's going to keep Paul in prison and not release him. He had no grounds for holding him. He hadn't been convicted of anything. But he wants to appease the Jews. And if he released him, well then the Jews would get all, he'd get in trouble with the Jews. But what we see in this is that Felix is procrastinating on two levels. The first level is he procrastinated on releasing Paul. Again, he had no right to hold him. But he's going to, to hold him there for two years until Felix, in verse 27, is succeeded by Porcius Festus. Now what we know about Felix, he's going to be recalled. And when you're recalled, as in a defective car part, when it gets recalled, that means there's a defect someplace. And Felix was a ruler that had many defects. So Nero is going to recall him back to Rome. He probably would have been put to death if his brother, Felix's brother who got him that position, didn't intervene and basically spare his life. But he's going to be taken out and replaced by Porcius Festus. So Paul's going to be in this situation for another two years. So, Felix procrastinates on releasing Paul, but he also procrastinates in a much more important issue of greater consequence, and that is he procrastinates in coming to faith in Christ. There's no evidence that he ever does. 
He heard the gospel about faith in Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He was fearful. He was frightened, verse 25. But it was a passing thing. He didn't respond. Felix was at a point of a spiritual continental divide. What he should have done is repented and believed and trusted Christ and forsaken his sinfulness and become a follower of of Jesus Christ, but he refused to come to Christ for salvation. He procrastinated his repentance even though he had heard the Gospel explained on many occasions. You know, it's never wise to procrastinate in coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Because, as Paul has emphasized, there is a judgment to come. Procrastination is a tragic decision for many. It's human nature to do it. Faith is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. But on the human level, it's a tragic decision that many procrastinate in coming to faith in Christ. They know about Christianity. Sometimes it's kids who are taught the Gospel from their parents growing up, but they procrastinate. They just don't come to faith in Christ. They hear the Gospel over and over and over again, but they never respond. They never give their heart to the Lord. They never repent of their sin. Others may hear it in a sermon or they may read a book or hear it on the radio and they hear the Gospel and for a a moment they, they become frightened. Maybe they become concerned. But they never repent. They procrastinate. They procrastinate coming to Christ and put it off to another time. Why do people procrastinate? I'm dealing on a human level because ultimately... They can't come to faith until God grants them that regeneration and that grace. But why do people procrastinate? They have many excuses. Some procrastinate thinking that, well, I have plenty of time. I'll become a Christian later in my life. I'm young now. All my life is ahead of me. I've got all these things I want to get involved in. I want to do. I want to seek my pleasure. I want to seek this. I want to seek that. And so they think, I've got plenty of time. I'll become a Christian later on. And many people procrastinate coming to Christ thinking they have plenty of time. They'll repent later. But they don't realize that the truth of the matter is that they're spiritually dead. That the longer they wait, the deader, if you will, and the harder their hearts become to that very same message. They're also deceived in the thinking that they can turn to God at any time. But the truth is far more grim. They can't. The Spirit of God may pull if they resist and not repent and believe, they think they will do it later. But the longer they wait, the more time their sin nature has to harden their already hardened hearts to make their conscience all the more callous and insensitive to the Gospel message, and to deepen their resolve to continue to postpone coming to Christ until it's of no interest at all. 
You can hear the same truth again later on in your life and it'll have less and less impression upon your soul. But they deceive themselves into thinking, oh yeah, my, I've been taught the Gospel, but I'll do it later. I'll repent later. They don't see that, again, the longer that they wait, they just keep piling up sins like a city dump. So in your neighborhood, like in mine, once a week, those dump trucks come down and they pick up all of our garbage and all of our trash. And they're up and down streets every day. And they carry all that trash and garbage out to the city dump. And they unload that. And they keep piling Piles upon piles upon piles of trash and garbage and filth. And that's what you're doing when you refuse to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're accumulating garbage and trash, sins and evils and wickedness in your life that God is aware of each and every one. As he says again in his letter to the Romans, Paul says, because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, the longer you delay, the greater your judgment will be. So some people procrastinate thinking that they have more time. Others procrastinate because they discount the danger that they're in. They say, well, you know, I'm really not all that bad and God really isn't all that mad, so everything's cool. They're blind to their own depravity. They're intrigued with the Gospel message. Yeah, the idea of forgiveness and going to heaven sounds good. But all that sin stuff, really, it doesn't apply to me really that much. I'm really a pretty good person. They think they're acceptable to God. They don't realize that in God's eyes, they're children of wrath. We're too easily distracted by the temporal things of the world, so we don't see the danger. We don't see the need for spiritual things. He should have responded like the Philippian jailer when his earthquake crisis came he cried out what must I do to be saved but Felix didn't do that he was frightened but he didn't respond that way he procrastinated others procrastinate because they just outright have convinced themselves that there is no such thing as a future judgment They attack and mock the idea of it. They hate and despise the idea of it. The notion that I'm going to stand before a holy God and He's going to judge me for my sins. They just outright reject it. The intelligentsia of modernism laughs and mocks at the idea of a coming day of judgment. Back in 1994, there was a debate between William Provine, an atheist, and Philip E. Johnson, a Christian at Stanford University, Provine the atheist said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, he said. No purposes. No goal-driven or directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. 
That's the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning of life. When you die, you're not going to be surprised because you're going to be completely dead. Now, if I find myself aware after I'm dead, I'm going to be really surprised. But at least I'm going to go to hell where I won't have all those grinning preachers from Sunday morning listening. That's the type of mockery that you see today. They don't even believe that there is such a thing as a coming judgment. He's convinced himself that that day will never come, but that is a false hope. That is a dead hope. Because one day he will stand before the judge of the living and the dead. There is a judgment to come. The day of judgment will be a day of glory for the saints. And it will be a day of horror for the unbeliever. For believers, there will be no condemnation on that day. Christ has taken away all of our sins. As the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. He's cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He has forgiven us our iniquities, our sins He remembers no more. And as Paul says in Romans 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So the judge will pronounce no condemnation. Eternal life. But for unbelievers, there will be no escape from judgment. The author of Hebrews says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For our God is a consuming fire, says the book of Hebrews. The Lord Jesus says on that day that unbelievers will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In one of his parables, Jesus says it'll be this way at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God yet to come. And on that last day, on that day of judgment, The wicked will not escape. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, it says that the kings of the earth on that day, the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? They will not be able to hide from God. God does not judge us at the end of every day. But in the end, God will judge every day. All is not over when you take your last breath. Provine was deadly wrong. The day is coming when the last trump will sound and we all will be called before the judgment seat of God. We will stand before God as our judge, unbelievers, as their judge. 
And though they may have slept in on many Sunday mornings, they will not sleep in on that day. They may have refused to listen to sermons throughout their life, but they will hear the words of God condemning them on that day. On that coming day of judgment, all sinners will stand before God. The books will be opened and they must give an account of every sin they have ever committed throughout every hour of their lives. Everything will be brought to the light of God's penetrating gaze. Every thought, every word, every deed, every motive of the heart. And no excuses will be allowed on that day. No bribes will be successful. Nothing you say in your defense will lessen the guilt of their sins. And how will they escape so great a judgment? They will not. They will not escape. Their sins have grown day by day into a mountain of guilt and evil and wickedness and the holy God of all the universe will judge them sin by sin on that day. But Christ offers forgiveness. Christ offers everlasting life. He promises to save that sinner if they would but repent and believe in Him and Him alone for salvation. He promises to give the free gift of everlasting life to any sinner who will come to Him and escape that coming day of judgment. But they must come. They must personally come. You must call out to God and confess your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ alone to forgive you or you will stand before God as your judge on that day. Death is not the end. Death merely ushers us into the presence of the judge of the living and of the dead. There is more beyond the grave. It's interesting Back in 1492, the Spanish coins had on them the pillars of Hercules at the Strait of Gibraltar because the Spaniards believed that the Strait of Gibraltar was the, was the westernmost point of anything. All beyond was just endless ocean. And on their coins, they had inscribed in Latin the phrase, Neplus Ultra, no more beyond. When you get to the end of the Strait of Gibraltar, it was just nothing but water. No more beyond. That was their view. That was a view of Provine. You come to the Straits of Gibraltar, your death, there's no more beyond. Until Columbus in 1492 sailed the ocean blue. And he discovered the Americas at that time. So after 1492... The Spaniards on their coins had to remint them and they took off the word no. So instead of ne plus ultra, it's now plus ultra, more beyond. There is more beyond. And the same thing with those who believe that they can come to death's door and there is no more beyond. The reality of the truth of Christ's death and resurrection is that there is more beyond. There is a judgment to come. A glory for the saints, but a horror for the unbelievers. As Hebrews chapter 3 therefore says, 
Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. If the Lord is drawing you at this moment, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe. Do not procrastinate. Come to Christ now at this moment. Confess your sins. Cast your faith upon Christ and He will save you. But do not procrastinate. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And Christ offers you eternal and abundant life now. You can receive it now. But you must come now to Christ. And may God give you that grace to repent and believe in Him that your sins might be forever washed away. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we thank You for the boldness of the Apostle Paul to speak to one of the most powerful men in that whole region and yet lovingly and carefully and exactly explain to him the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that in Your own mercy and grace, if there is anyone in this room this morning, maybe a child, maybe an adult, that has heard the Gospel time and time again, but for one reason or another, they've put it off. They've procrastinated. Oh, may the Spirit of God quicken their hearts. May You give them a new heart. Open their heart that they might see their sin and see that their hope for salvation is only in Jesus Christ and may they flee to Him that they might escape the judgment to come. And thank You, Lord, for those who by that grace have put their faith in Christ. We have the hope of glory ahead of us and fill us with joy today for all that Christ has saved us for and that all that Christ has saved us from. And may we worship Him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.